0: Hi, this is the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I'm speaking with Alethea Blayberg. Alethea is the Director of Learning Curve Education Consulting Limited and an IBDP Core Consultant. I was particularly keen to talk to Thea about the IBDP Extended Essay about which she has extensive knowledge. We discuss her experience with international schooling and the EE specifically, the ways in which an English EE differs in difficulty or challenge from other subjects and why students should choose an EE in English, what the first mistake is that students or schools often make when beginning the EE process, what Thea's advised process is for planning, drafting, and writing an EE in English, the ideal types of text or texts to choose in literature or language EEs, and whether students best advise to stay away from the classics, from a teacher's perspective, the main things that students tend to struggle with that we might not spot, and lastly, the best resources for students or teachers during the EE process. As I state in the episode, I was bowled over by not only Thea's knowledge, but also her personal connection to the project and process of writing an EE. Her advice would serve any IBDP teacher well during what can be a demanding assignment and would also be a valuable listen for the students tasked with writing it. If you wanna be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter Akris Jordan, HK. Okay, Thea, um, what was your experience with uh, the IB or international schooling and the extended essay specifically?
1: Well, I've actually been in international schooling my whole life because my parents were both um, IB educators and administrators. So I grew up on the uh, campuses of international schools in the Netherlands and also the UK. Um, And I'm also an IB Diploma graduate myself. Um, In fact, my parents taught me all of the subjects that I ended up um, teaching myself, including English and TOK, my father was a university guidance counselor and i've ended up being a university guidance counselor and he was an ib diploma coordinator which i've also ended up doing and um so i followed very closely in their footsteps um but yeah after um i finished studying um i got my MPhil, and then i moved to beijing and that's where i started my international teaching career in 2004 So um, I started as an English as a second language teacher and an English literature teacher um, in an international school in Beijing and then in 2008 I moved to Hong Kong um, and I've taught um, English, um, theory of knowledge um, um, and a variety of other subjects actually over the years like life skills Um, but I've also been um, a TOK coordinator in the last three schools that I've been in and extended essay coordinator. So I was the TOK and Extended Essay Coordinator at ISF Academy for um, five years. And I was also a university guidance counsellor there and a member of the senior um, school leadership team. Then I moved to Singapore to be an IB Diploma Coordinator um, and TOK Coordinator and Extended Essay Coordinator. Um, I also then I came back to Hong Kong and started my own education consultancy, um, offering my services to international schools to improve their provisions and um, processes for supporting the IB Diploma Core because that's really kind of the area that I'm very passionate about and where I found my niche. Um, so most recently, I did that for a year at French International School in Hong Kong last year. Um, I'm also an extended essay examiner um, in World Studies, and I'm a member of the IB's um, extended essay curriculum review team. And I've also written uh, for quite a lot of blogs on the extended essay um, and I also lurk around in the Extended Essay uh, Coordinator's Facebook group, a lot answering questions that people have about the Extended Essay. So, yeah, that's my background in the Extended Essay.
0: Well, i fairly, like steeped in um, the IB and Extended Essay then, to, to, to say the least. We're certainly speaking to the, the right person when it comes to the core and um, the Extended Essay. Um, I, I have to admit that I, I've taught the yeah. IB for maybe... God, I don't know, eight years, 10 years, something like that. And I feel like the core, particularly the extended essay, is the thing which I always endeavour to do better in. Uh, I think I've had mixed results in terms of the students that I've looked after. So what is um, – I've only had the benefit of, of doing an English or, or um, um, guiding students through an English EE. So in what ways does an English EE differ in difficulty or challenge – Um, from other subjects, you you get a lot of students saying they'd rather do English than certain other subjects. Even the students who are going on to do medicine and things like that, they would rather do English for some reason. I'm not sure if this is just, um, yeah, I don't know, kind of student logic, which I'm not privy to, but um, how does English differ, in your opinion, in, in difficulty and challenge? And why should students choose an EE in English? What's the best reason to choose an English EE?
1: Well, I actually think if you've got students um, who are coming to you wanting to do an English extended essay, even if they're trying to get into a course like medicine, they've actually got it right. Um, there are a number of reasons. I think there are sort of three um categories of students who should consider doing an English extended essay, but in order to understand maybe the second and third category, let me just go through some of the statistics from the IB statistical bulletin for you. Because even though every student has to do an extended essay, Um, They're not all equal in terms of the popularity of the subjects or in terms of the proportionality of grades that students are likely to receive. So English is perennially popular as an extended essay subject. It's always the second most popular subject every year after history. And that's only because a lot of American schools make their students do an extended essay in history regardless of their um, interests or talents or background in history. So um, about 12 and a half thousand students do their extended essay in English every May session. And um, over 20 percent of students who do an English extended essay end up getting an A in their extended essay, which is vastly different to the proportion of A's in um, other groups. So, for instance, if you do your extended essay in a group three subject, only 11 percent of students get an A. Uh, If you look at um, the proportion of students who are likely to get an A, B or C in English, it's something really high, like about 87 percent of students. And again, that's quite a bit higher um, than some other subjects where the proportion of E grades is larger. And of course, you need to pass the extended essay, meaning score between A and D to get your IB diploma. So I think there are three groups of students who are drawn towards doing an English extended essay. The first, of course, the students who have a really strong interest in language and literature are likely to go on to study that at university or students who are going to study another really language heavy or essay heavy subject at university like law. Um, The second group is the group that you just alluded to, students who, who might be studying medicine at university but are still attracted to an English extended essay. Well, that's because they need to maximize their overall point score, right, for their university offers. So they might be made an offer of, you know, 40 plus points, in which case those three core points from TOK and the extended essay are going to be really important to them making their um, conditional offer or not. And since we've already established that you're more likely to do well in an English extended essay even if that's not their specialist field, and even if they're more interested in a science subject, if your goal is to get into medical school, and therefore you need to maximize your overall IB point score, it actually makes a lot of sense. The other reason I think it makes a lot of sense is that an English extended essay is less of a leap for many students than an extended essay in other subjects, because it looks the most like the kind of essays that students are already familiar with. So an extended essay in English is basically a very long version of an essay that they will have already written in English before. And especially if you go back to sort of previous iterations of the guide, like I don't know if you remember the world literature essay, actually, the extended essay is very similar to that. So I think that when students are intimidated by the prospect of the extended essay and especially the large quantities of research they might have to do, whether it's primary or secondary, if you're thinking about, you know, the science students, Um, You know, especially during Covid times as well with school closures and not having access to labs. Again, doing an English extended essay makes a lot of sense because really all you need is the primary text and a bit of access to some secondary literature online. And you've got an extended essay ready to go. Um, You don't need to have access to a lot of additional resources like you might if you're doing a group four extended essay. And I think the last group of students that should consider doing um, either a group one or a group two extended essay would be weaker students who are really challenged by the prospect of writing a 4,000 word research essay for exactly the reason that we've just spoken about. It's less of a stretch. They'll be more familiar with the kind of writing involved. There's far less secondary reading and research involved in an a group one in a literature extended essay, there's still some, don't get me wrong, but not a lot uh, compared to some other subjects. And again, you're much more likely to score between an A and a C as compared to some other subjects. So I think that there are many different groups of students who are attracted to an English extended essay for those reasons. And actually their reasoning is quite sound.
0: Mm, That's, um, yeah, some fascinating kind of um information from the ib Actually, i had absolutely no idea that like both history and english were like number one and number two for group three subjects that you mentioned there thea that is that is group three maths or is group three so group
1: three is individuals and societies ah, <coughs> so it's okay. history psychology in fact the uh the most so the third most popular subject is psychology and the ib only releases ah. the the top 10 most popular subjects so it doesn't tell us the popularity of all subjects but the number one subject is history then english then psychology then biology then business then world studies then economics then physics then visual arts and then math
0: (laughs) Math, math's very low down yeah Uh, But it's still
1: still the top 10, right? So there's lots of other subjects that you could do. So actually, maths isn't faring that badly. But if you have a look at the numbers for history, it's somewhere around 14,000 a year. If you look at maths, it's around 3,500 a year. So there's just a huge number of students doing history extended essays. Unfortunately, when you look at the proportion of grades that are awarded, a lot of those essays end up getting ease. And that's because they're not you know probably they're not even taking history they don't have a background in history and a lot of these essays end up being research questions like what is the history of the mobile phone which mm. obviously isn't academic history as we understand it uh in the history course and therefore they you know they, they can't score very highly against the assessment criteria but you know that's a problem of new schools coming into the ib and not being properly guided in the extended essay and yeah. also that sort of interacting with some national requirements sometimes like in the US, some States say that, you know, students need to take a history course. And so schools try to fulfill that right. criterion by having students write history extended essays, but that's not obviously the right way to do it. But yeah. So I'd say actually, you know, if we take history out of the equation for that reason, English is the most popular subject mm. to do an essay in. Um, and students tend to do well at it. I mean, I think that it shows that, students, you know, have probably the longest um, academic career so far in English and maths, right? Because they'll have been doing those subjects since primary school. And I think it shows when you look at the um, quality of English extended essays, they are relatively higher simply because students have been at it for longer. Whereas if they're doing an economics extended essay, they're starting to write that extended essay after only studying economics for like five or six months. And so they just don't have the same kind of familiarity with the Um, expectations of you know economics and economic theory that they would in expectations of English so yeah Mm. I mean I think that you know doing an English extended essay is a really good option for quite a lot of students that's not to say everyone should do it and obviously if you have no intention of studying English or literature at university, then it makes more sense to study the subject that you will be pursuing at university, because that's going to make a much more coherent um, application profile in your application. But, um, you know, for some students who are really struggling and also if they're between subjects and if we're not really confident that they're going to be able to do the kind of level of research that's required in other subjects, um, you know, English can be, a good stepping stone to forcing them into that academic research essay world without making it so overwhelming that they, you know, that they sort of shut down and fail at it completely. Yeah.
0: And those, those three points, like you say, that are, are available for the core could be the difference between, you know, your first university and your, your fourth choice university. So it's obviously key that um, they, they make the right choice in that regard. Um, what's, what do you think, so you've got a lot of experience kind of guiding individual students through the process and whole cohorts as well. What do you think tends to be the first mistake that students or dare I say it schools often make when beginning the EE process Uh, and how does this apply to English?
1: Okay so the first one is definitely that students don't read the guide, and they're not fully aware of the rules and the things that they should and shouldn't be doing. And I do have sympathy for students, because, you know, the extended essay guide, if you download it as a PDF is 367 pages long. So it's a sizable document. And I think we all can agree that getting students to read that much text about anything is is a huge task. But obviously, you know, students do have the responsibility to find out all of the specific guidance that's given about the subject that they're going to do their extended essay in and the thing that I like to do as an extended essay coordinator is spend a long time inducting students into what the expectations of the extended essay are and then the subject specific expectations that are sometimes quite different, because you know, some subjects you have to do primary research and some subjects you're not allowed to do primary research. And, um, you know, in some subjects, you can't do a topic older than five years and some it has to be older than 10 years. So if you don't know those rules, you know, it can be very daunting for students. And so it really is important for you know kids to spend time with the guide either with their supervisor or, with, you know, in classes, if they're lucky enough to have those in their school or by themselves, because the website is publicly available to students and really go through that guidance. So the number one mistake that students make, for instance, in English is, of course, there are three categories of essay, there's cat one, cat two, and cat three, and students not understanding the difference between those and then ending up, you know, writing an essay that doesn't fulfill the requirements for um, any one of those three categories. So you'll be familiar that the Cat 1 essay is the essay around one text originally written in English. The Cat 2 essay is one text written in English compared to a text in translation. And then the Cat 3 uh, are the non-literary, you know, cultural slash non-literary slash media type texts. So, you know, advertisements or speeches and things of that kind. Um, You know, I've walked into schools before and asked kids about their – extended essay research questions and i I walked up to a student who was doing a korean a um essay and i said oh what text is your extended essay on and he said harry potter and i said oh okay harry potter compared to what text in korean um and he said "No, no no just harry potter and i said but harry potter's not written in korean what are you doing and he like you know he just had no idea and no one had told him and you know, so, you know, luckily I saved him from disaster because he could add a Korean text to that and and save it as a Category 2 essay. But, you know, kids make mistakes like that all the time. So that's the first thing is to really understand the rules and the requirements and the assessment criteria. Um, the second thing that students need to do and, uh, you know, because these documents are kept on my IB, it is incumbent on the extended essay coordinator to make these documents available to students, but students need to read the examiners reports in uh, the subject that they're taking their extended essay in. So if you read, um, you know, the most recent examiners report for English, for instance, it will tell you um, a list of authors that basically the IB is saying, we don't want to see any more extended essays um, on Aptwood, Orwell, Huxley, Fitzgerald, you know, like, they're very explicit they will tell you but again if you don't read the information then you're not going to benefit from it i think the third mistake is that students don't start early enough i think the process because the way that you move is that students need to decide the subject that they're going to do their extended essay in first and then a topic and then a research question but that process of moving from subject to topic to research question it takes months it's like percolating, like it needs to just like ideas need to be bubbling away in their little brains, you know, they need to have different conversations with different people, they need to go away and look at things on the internet, they need to go and read a couple of books, they need to draw connections between different things that they've been learning about. That takes time. So you know, sometimes in schools, they'll have this really narrow timeline where it's like Monday, they're introduced to the extended essay. And by Friday, they need to fill in some Google doc where they've committed to their research question. And that whole kind of process of the the intellectual inquiry and curiosity, the, the kind of discussion, the bubbling of ideas, that process is just completely minimized. And I think that's a huge mistake. Because when kids are forced to narrow down a topic and a research question really carefully without having really thought about it and having gone through that um kind of iterative process that's when they often like land on topics which are no good research questions that don't make sense or something like a text that they don't actually like like they haven't read the text yet so they'll say i'm going to do it on you know, I'll do it on, on, you know, the color purple and they haven't read the color purple. And then, you know, they get halfway through it and they're like, I can't even make sense of this. And I don't know what it's about. And I don't like it. And I can't, you know, I can't continue. And then it's just a waste of time. And I just don't think that there's anything to be gained from like forcing kids through the the EE pipeline in a really kind of mechanical um, and accelerated fashion that sometimes I do see. I think the fourth mistake that students make is that they don't use the extended essay as a learning process. So they just think of it as a a task that they have to do. So all of the skills that they're supposed to learn from it, like time management, organization, academic integrity, citing and referencing, um, you know, drafting and redrafting, taking feedback, working together with a supervisor, they just don't, They don't get that from the experience. They just sort of, you know, run through it as quickly as possible and then tick a box and say finished, or they have a horrible time with it. They're dragged by their bootstraps the whole way by their supervisor and they get to the end of it and they never want to look at their EE again. Both of those are just, you know, wasted opportunities for learning. Um, So that's another mistake. Um, and I think the last one is that students aren't prepared to take feedback. So they have a supervisor, they go through the first draft, they get feedback on their first draft, but they're so married to their first, you know, version of the text that even when they get really good feedback on how to improve it, they just don't want to action that. Um, I've seen that lots and lots of times.
0: Mm, me too. I have to say, yeah, all of those things are resonating with me quite loudly. Um, what would be your advice then? there um, in terms of you've obviously sort of mentioned a few things there in terms of what you would advise in the um the the planning the drafting the writing stages of an extended essay but um, when you sit down with a student what do you typically advise them to do in an english ee in terms of the planning process the drafting process and the writing process
1: So i mean the way that i i support students, you know, as a coordinator is that I think that, you know, all students need a course in how to do the skills that they're being asked to do, no matter what the subject is that they've chosen. So, you know, how to formulate a research question, you know, how to sort of get to that Goldilocks moment of not too broad, not too narrow, but just right, how to um, you know, phrase a question so that it's asking something genuine, um, you know, not just tacking to what extent in front of something that sounds half decent. Um, and then obviously, you know, where to do research, you know, academic databases, online journals, you know, just going through what a journal article is, and what an abstract is, and where they where they can find these, you um, Journal articles that they will need to read and how to take notes, how to keep a researcher's reflection space as they should, um, you know, providing some kind of structure for that so that, you know, whether it's a Google Doc or a template that the school produces or some other way that the school has to make sure that students are actually documenting their research. I think that's kind of a process that the school needs to take ownership of through the DP coordinator or the EE coordinator or a combination of different subject heads to make sure that students are set up with the skills that they'll need. And then when it comes specifically to English extended essays, I think that students really need that time to to read and to just play with ideas and that those first meetings with the supervisor are not focused on, have you done your first reflection session? Have you got something in your researcher's reflection space? Have you ticked this box? Have you uploaded something to you know, the Google classroom, like, because I think that those, um, those meetings can often be quite formulaic and, and box ticking exercises or administrative because supervisors are anxious that they're following the process and the kids are on task and that they can sort of just click something and manage back that says that they're on track and then sort of the problem goes away for a while. Right. And I mean, that's a very cynical, um, characterization of of an extended essay supervision process and I'm not saying that supervisors are like that but I'm saying it can feel burdensome in a way that I wish it wasn't because it's that authentic interaction between supervisor and student that's like that's where the value is but I think that those meetings of really just sitting down with your supervisor and discussing the text that you're interested in or the angle that you're interested in or the literary theory that you want to you know ground your analysis in Those are invaluable because that's where the students get a real sense of inquiry. They get a real sense of ownership over their extended essay and they, you know, establish that trust in their supervisor, that their supervisor is actually genuinely there to support them in their intellectual development and not just to be that person who signs off at the end of the the process So I think that's really important to do the the reading and the research and to take notes. And the reason why kids hate that is because it takes time. Because if you say, well, you need to read this text, and then while you're reading it, you need to annotate and highlight. And at the same time, when you come across key quotes, you need to write those down in a notebook or put them into a Google Doc and make sure that you're documenting what page you got them from. That just sounds, you know, it sounds torturous to students. But of course, that is what good research is. Um, and so I find that students tend to want to rush through that just to get to the writing stage, because the writing stage is what feels productive to them. But of course, if they haven't read and they haven't analyzed and they haven't thought and they haven't done their mind maps and they haven't done their other, you know, analytical exercises, then whatever they end up writing is going to be incoherent anyway. But, you know, students will be students and we all know the kids that just are like, I just want to put something on paper and be, be finished. Um, I think students also need to think about the argument that they're creating, because obviously they've got a question. That question needs to be answered. And the answer to that question is some kind of argument about the text or the perspective that the author has on the text or some kind of analysis of the use of literary devices. So there is an argument there. And sometimes I think students don't quite realize that what they're doing is coming up with an argument. They just think that they're answering a question like if they were in an exam. Uh, but it's not quite like that you know they have they have the ability to shape their argument and so i think that spending time on really trying to put some put some structure around that argument so that the argument is clear throughout is obviously how you excel in criterion c which is critical thinking and that's where students tend to do the most poorly because they've you know, they've executed the task, they've written an essay, they've answered a question, but they haven't convinced an examiner that they had a real grasp of their material, that they had a real, you know, a a real understanding of what the question was asking them to do, which was actually come up with an argument. Um, I think they need to not worry about the word count. So often kids are writing their first draft and they're like, I've already got three and a half thousand words and I'm only halfway through and, uh, you know, I'm going to stop writing or I'm going to, you know, nix this whole part of my essay. And so the the one piece of advice that students need to know is that you'll probably end up writing between six and 8,000 words in your first draft. And that's fine. And I don't like schools that say that you can't hand in more than 4,000 words in your first draft. Because I just think, well, that's not realistic. Because anyone who's written a master's thesis or a PhD thesis knows that the first draft is not anywhere close to what the final draft is. But again, it's that conversation. It's the, this is the totality of the ideas in my mind. These are the different directions that I've gone in during this research process. And the supervisor's role is then to try to ask some critical questions and impose some structure on that and give the students some indication of what has potential and what really, you know, doesn't need to be there. Um, But I think, yeah, students are constantly worried about word count, And I think we need to get away from that. And then lastly, I think write the introduction last. I think all students like to start with the introduction, but obviously the introduction is, you know, you need to actually know where you end up in order to go back to the introduction and write something which matches the essay that you end up writing. And often students write the introduction, then they write the essay. They end up in a different place than they thought that they were going to to go in. And then the introduction no longer matches what the essay actually says you know, there's no point in that. So write the essay first, write the introduction last so that you know that it's an actual introduction to what you've put on paper, not what you thought you were going to put on paper.
0: That was um, possibly the most succinct answer to an incredibly complex idea that I've ever heard. There, Thank you very much. Um, and so many of those things kind of... Uh, bring back some, yeah, very fond memories. The, um especially the one of the, the, yeah, the word count one I've come across like time and time again. And also, um the idea of I just want to get it done. I want to get writing. I want to get started. It's almost like they're, um, to use that hackneyed cliche, they're almost building the plane as it's taken off, so to speak. So, um, you you kind of mentioned before a couple of writers there, like um, Orwell. Um um tennessee williams um there tends to be like one or two if not more writers every year when the examiner report comes out which is um that has been overdone and and the ib kind of recommends that you don't go near them do you think there is like an ideal type of text for literature students so the ones doing um the, the kind of category a category b um, or like a language text in in the the third category that students could go for, and and are are there certain texts that they definitely shouldn't go for in your experience?
1: I think that the classics are a mistake because. I mean, I, th- I think that there's also been a bit of a change if I look at the language in the examiner's report. So I think previous in previous iterations of the EE guide, they really wanted students to do almost no secondary research on their texts in order to guarantee that students' research was their own. And that's obviously in quite stark contrast to EEs and other subjects where you need to do quite considerable secondary research. In the most recent language that I'm seeing in the examiner's report, they are closing that gap and saying that students shouldn't choose texts that don't have mm-hmm. secondary sources um, written about them. Um, but still the requirement, I think, for students to demonstrate that analysis that their analysis is their own is still really important. So You know, if you're doing Shakespeare or Arthur Miller or Tennessee Williams or Atwood, there's so much out there that's already been written that it's almost impossible for students to do their own analysis without making reference to what other people have already said. Um, And it's a bit of a catch-22, because if you were to do, say, Atwood, and you don't read everything that people have written about Handmaid's Tale, then you haven't really done thorough research. But if you do, then surely it's going to interpret your own perspective, and then you can't really do anything original. So I think that the perfect text that you should be aiming for is one which obviously is of literary merit, because, um, you know, the examiner's guides are very... Um, Insistent that you know students choose texts that have this literary merits I think it's because I mean obviously they need to choose texts which are sophisticated enough and have enough meat to them for analysis but also because there are lots of texts which are in the cultural zeitgeist at particular moments in time which you know, we're not really going to lead students towards being very successful just because they're not really sophisticated enough. Um, and of course, that's a controversial thing to say. And we could argue about which text exactly, you know, would be and wouldn't be of literary merit. That's a discussion that often goes on in the IB Facebook groups, which I, you know, which I like a lot. But um but i think that you know you should have good instincts as a literature teacher of what you know is sophisticated enough and what what isn't so i think you want to stay away from the classics you want to stay away from anything which is you know really sort of you know you, you know which lots of people are you know the eat pray love the gone girl you know that sort of genre probably isn't ideal I think, you know, I, I sort of send my students away to have a look at the Man Booker Award prize list or other literary award prize lists. And maybe not something that's published this year or even in the last 12 months, because again, there might not be enough written about it, but something that might be two or three or four years old. So there certainly is, you know, a body of criticism out there around this text. Certainly there are plenty of reviews that have been written about the text, but it hasn't been done to death. Um, you know, your examiner is likely to have, you know, read it or at least heard of it if they haven't read it, because that can also be an issue, of course. Um, But it's not going to be something that your examiner has also read 20, 30 essays on already and therefore is sick to the back of their teeth with. Um So that's that's sort of the place where I want my students to start. I mean, often they, you know, students come to you and they say, well, I like, I like, you know, um, Nigerian post-colonial literature and you go, okay, that's great. Well, who have you read? Who haven't you read? Well, you've read Adichie. Why don't you try somebody else? Um, or they'll come to you and say, I'm really into, you know, contemporary feminist, you know, poetry or something. Great. well, try this. Um, I find it's not often that a kid says I'm really passionate about doing an English literature extended essay, but I have absolutely no idea of what text I'm interested in because that's a bit of a contradiction in terms. I mean, it can happen, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you might question whether the student is really as committed as they say. Um, so I think that yeah, I mean, it's you know, I've I've definitely sat down with students. I mean, I'm I'm not that well versed on gothic horror as a genre. Um, and I had a student who really wanted to pursue that, and they said, well, you know. I think, you know, doing Dracula is going to be a bit on the nose, but what else could we do? You know, so we, you know, we sat down together and we had a look at, you know, lots of different texts and we settled on something that we thought kind of fell in that sweet spot of not so much of a classic, but certainly something that was of literary merit. There had been things written about it, but it was more contemporary. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of the tried and tested texts. And, you know, my students tend to do well with that approach. Um, so that would be my
0: advice. Does it does it kind of by that same rationale then? Does it mean that if they're to do uh, a language-based text, so like a uh, you know advertisements or speeches or whatever, like a category three um, essay, does does is that more advantageous to them because by the nature of that particular text type, depending on the text type they choose, of course, there's bound to be less sort of criticism out there than there would be, like you say, if it was a
1: I don't think that there's a, you know, if you're talking about Cat 3, I don't think that there are text types to stay away from necessarily, but I do think Mm. that there are cliches of versions of text types. So, you know, students often gravitate towards doing advertisements, and advertisements could be really rich fodder for an extended essay. But please don't do, like, you know, representations of women in beer adverts. Like, (laughs) it's just... It's just, you know, that's cliche. Like I've seen that so many times. So, yeah. so sure, do advertising, but do something that's a bit more niche, that's a bit more, you know, off the beaten trail. I mean, I think in the last couple of years, we've seen lots of students wanting to analyze Donald Trump's speeches. And again, I mean, it just makes me yawn. And I just think, well, why? Mm. I mean, it's it's so predictable. Why would you do, do Donald Trump? like, you know, why not, you know, Michelle Obama, or, you know, another politician who is far more um, eloquent in their oratory, <laughs> but isn't Donald Trump, you know, so I think that there there's just, um, of course, it's about judgment. And and again, you know, people might disagree and say, well, there's lots to to, to analyze in this person's speeches. But I just think that when it's if it's something that a lot of kids are seizing on all at the same time. And the other thing is, you know, Donald Trump's uh, tweets, right. Cause I teach TOK as mm. well. So for, a, you know, for a number of years, all that they wanted to write about in their TOK presentations was Donald Trump's or they, all that they wanted to speak about in their presentation was Donald Trump's tweets. And it just, you know, I saw so many presentations that were about, you know, fake news and, um, you know, the power of social media to manipulate. And, you know, of course, that is what, you know, TOK is about to some extent, but the examples that you choose also indicate the level of sophistication of your thinking about the issue, right? So if you're kind of gravitating towards the most obvious thing, it doesn't really indicate to the examiner that you've got a really good grounding and that you can see that this is like the really obvious cliched extreme example but why don't I choose something that's a bit more sophisticated, a bit more nuanced, a bit more interesting, a bit more off the beaten track and then you can do something so much more interesting with it I find.
0: Yeah I agree with you I think like if you want to talk about the canon of like language text of course we don't have that but I'm sure that there's been like lots and lots of essays written about Martin Luther King who would be part of kind of the rhetorical canon or Winston Churchill and stuff like that. So I suppose it's about finding the equivalent of, you know, a a modern day speaker or a lesser well-known speaker to analyze like a, like a Michelle Obama. So it's, it's, I suppose it's almost the same advice as the literature, like don't do, well, but do do, um, you know, a uh, girl woman, other by, uh, Bernardine Evaristo or something like that. Yeah. That's really good advice. Yeah. Um, in, in, so from a teacher's perspective, I think you've, you've, mentioned quite a few things in terms of the way that the schools see the process and the the mistakes that schools often make, because it's, it's kind of a sign for, right, everyone gets to meet the student on this day, at this time, discuss these things. And it can become, definitely in my experience, I've treated it in quite a... Um, not a perfunctory manner, but in quite a mechanical manner. It's just like, right, let's discuss this and let's discuss that. So is there anything else like from from a teacher's perspective, um, a rather limited perspective, what are the main things that students tend to struggle with uh, that we might not spot? Uh, You've obviously mentioned a few already. Are there any that you'd like to reiterate or uh, new ones that you'd like to mention?
1: I think in my conversations with teachers, one thing that seems to come up, well, there's a couple of sort of attitudes that teachers have that I think need to be redressed slightly. I think the first is that teachers often have or can have the perspective that they should do the bare minimum that the EE guide says that they have to in terms of contact time being three hours, in terms of the number of meetings, you know, three reflection sessions, and, and that anything that they provide that's more than that is essentially over-supporting the student and in some way allowing the student to cheat that's not the IB's perspective. Like, obviously, the IB doesn't want you to be hand-holding for the kid, writing it with them, you know, editing it actively and things like that. You know, that the, the, the limits of what you can and can't do with the actual essay itself are quite clear. But there's absolutely no um, limitations put on, you know, the sort of casual constant interactions that you can have with a student just to check in with them make sure that they're on task or the kind of you know critical questions that you can ask them that will just deepen their thinking um, and allow them to go to that next level in terms of their analysis so I get frustrated when teachers sort of think that the default position for supervision is do nothing and then do the absolute minimum because you have to, but, you know, don't establish that sort of supportive and trustful relationship with your supervisee that really kind of sparks their, their interest and inspiration in your subject. Like I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, I went to Cambridge, so I went through the supervision system there. And of course, you know, the value of the supervision system is that you get these one-on-one meetings with, you know, the foremost minds in your field, and you get to just sit there and, and talk and chat and and discuss ideas and have exchanges and be pushed and and be challenged. And I think that the EE supervision system is flawed in that we are both sort of being held to account by it, which is you need to do this, you need to sign this paperwork, you need to make sure that the student, you know, gets one, one draft of, you know, feedback on their, you know, first draft and so on. So it is quite regimented and prescriptive in some ways. And then on the other hand, I think they are also trying to do this other sort of second process, which is much more, ideas driven, much more relationship driven, much more about kind of sparking the interest in the students and, you know, um, supporting them when they're going through challenges and and that kind of thing. So I, I understand where Teachers who've worked in schools where it is very much just about ticking boxes on manage back have that perspective on it, mm. but I don't personally think that that's the way that it should be. And the conversations I've had with you know my team leaders and with you know workshop leaders seem to suggest that I think a majority of people think that it should be, you know, a process that supervisors engage with beyond just these kind of minimal interactions. So I think that that's one attitude that, or that's one way in which schools can sometimes actually shoot themselves in the foot for 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 teachers and the students because i don't think teachers enjoy the box ticking aspect of the mm-hmm. supervision process right the actual enjoyment comes from seeing your student kind of take an idea run with it you know go through some challenges but come out the other side you know make some connections that they hadn't before progress in their writing progress in their thinking You know, that's that's where you get your enjoyment as a teacher from. So I sometimes don't really understand when teachers have this very like I'm too busy. I don't you know, it's the last thing on my to do list. I, I don't want to do it. I understand we're all really, really busy. Like I don't, you know, of course, I understand that. But, you know, these are also students that are going off to university that, you know, their extended essay scores are really important to their university applications. Like I think that we have a responsibility to actually do more than the bare minimum to support them. I think the other thing related to what I've just said is that teachers really underestimate the academic challenge and the intellectual challenge that the extended essay is for students. So I think when I've talked to students about their EE process again and again, they just are like, at the end of it, overwhelmed by how you know, the scale of the challenge and how difficult it was and, and all of the different things that they had to learn through the process. And I think that teachers, because we've all gone to university, we've written multiple, you know, dissertations, we sort of don't realise that this is the first time for these students to undertake something of this scale and that they're doing it at the same time as balancing six subjects and mm. and their after-school activities and their university applications and their SAT prep. And the, you know whatever else they're doing, so they've got so much on their plate. So even when we did it at university, it was like we had a whole term to work on our dissertation or something. We didn't have to do anything else. So it was all that we had to worry about. And for our students, that's not the case. They've got so much going on. And like, you know, their lives are literally divided into 40 or 50 minute chunks running between lesson and lesson. They get to the end of the day, they're exhausted and they might start thinking about their extended essay at 11 o'clock at night when they've finished all their other homework. Well, I know for myself, 11 o'clock at night is not the time when I do my best thinking. and. You know, unfortunately, our students are also not experienced enough to know that they need to, you know, block their time differently, start with extended essay, do their other homework later in the evening, all of that. So I do have empathy for just the the scale of the task, because for for other pieces of homework, it's like, well, will you study for this test and then it's done or we'll do this IA but it'll be finished in three weeks time but the extended essay is just this like monolith that extends over months and months and it seems to be the one thing that students put off and put off and put off and then of course the more that they procrastinate then the worse their procrastination becomes so I, I just think that sometimes we need to approach students a little bit more empathetically when it comes to what they are actually facing which is you know, some some well, a lot of school students would never have to write a 4000 word research essay, you know, before going to university. And some universities wouldn't require students to do it that even in their first years. So we are asking university level work of 17-year-olds, and you know, they can be frustrating. And I know that they run rings around us, I know they ask some really silly questions and they don't do what they should. But I think even for the very best students, the extended essay is still a really challenging process. And I think if we keep that in mind, it just gives us a little bit more empathetic space to deal with, you know, the kinds of questions or the kinds of problems that our our kids are facing.
0: Yeah, I agree with you completely, actually, uh, in terms of the empathy and the um, showing showing, showing them a side of you, which is... That you genuinely enjoy having the conversations that you're having about the subject like you said before it's they've obviously come to you because they, they they enjoy the subject to a certain extent and you want to kind of reciprocate in terms of how much passion that you have for the subject as well i remember having like a conversation about um uh the roads that call mccarthy book a couple of years ago with um a student and all we did for like 30 minutes was just discuss like different interpretations and stuff like that and it was genuinely like really refreshing and he went away with um you know a completely sort of well a slightly changed kind of like stance on the book and it was it was a far more representative conversation um of you know if he did go on to do literature at university which he didn't but had he it was quite similar to the sort of conversations that i was having with my tutors in year one year two year three at university so yeah a a little bit more empathy and a little bit more kind of um yeah avoidance of the 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 box ticking i think is excellent advice um uh, lastly uh, thea just um have you got any um, advice in terms of the best resources uh, for students or teachers um during the ee process well i
1: think for english extended essays the, the, the best resource really is just the text, right? I mean, that has to be your starting points. And for students to, you know, get an old-fashioned notebook and some highlighters and a pen and to be annotating their text is really, really important. And, I mean, you'll be surprised. Like, I'll have students, you know, come to me for a supervision session, and they arrive with their Kindle or they try and get the PDF version that they've, you know, downloaded illegally up on their laptop or something. And then they're like, yeah, I read it. And I'm like, well, where are your annotations? Like where, where's your notebook? Like how are you going to function with this digital text if you can't do that? So I think that actually before you start, you need to discuss with students actually how they're going to organize themselves, especially with their note-taking. It's not just for English, it's for every subject, but I think for English, because the annotation process is so important, um, you know, making sure that students actually realize that they need to buy a hard copy and that they actually need to annotate the text physically is really important. Um, You know, I think that, you know, students need to have access to journal databases, to, um, you know, online sources. And I have worked in schools where, you know, we haven't had access to JSTOR and other online databases. And it's really kind of hamstrung the students in terms of The level of detail with which they can really research, you know, do their secondary research, you know, especially when it comes to literary criticism, you know, a lot of that is simply only found um, in journal, um, you know, in journals behind a paywall. So it really is the school's responsibility to access that for students of course if the school doesn't have access or if the school doesn't have access to the one thing that the you know it's always the one journal that the student needs that the school doesn't seem to have included in their package Um, the Hong Kong public library is really good and also has access to um, e-databases and uh, online journals so they should definitely go in Um, sign up to the Hong Kong Public Library and then they can also access a lot of really good resources that way. Um, Another thing that you can do very easily is contact Hong Kong University Library and other university libraries um, and they'll give students passes to have a look at their um, books um, or actually um, access their online resources as well, their journals. Um, And I think, you know, that's all that you really need. I'm not a big fan of a lot of the supportive, you know, softwares that are out there for students. Like students often want to use citation machines. I understand why, but I think that they're really tricky. And I think it's much better if students understand what citing referencing actually is. So I think the only website you really need is MLA.org or whatever the citation style that your school mandates for you. And, um, you know, just do it by hand. Um And obviously access to Turnitin is very useful for students as well as for teachers. Um, So those are sort of bits of software that I think are helpful. Um, But yeah, it's just, you know, access, access to some resources, access to some journals, um, the texts. And um, I mean, you can do a lot with that.
0: Get started, Yeah. Yeah. um okay well all that remains for me to say yeah theorist thank you very much for um giving your time up to speak to me today the, the the passion with which you've talked about the extended essay today i think that's so important in a in a coordinator or in a you know an ee coordinator or a core coordinator a dp coordinator and um yeah i think anyone any student or any school that you've you're affiliated with at the minute is very lucky to have you it was quite an inspiring kind of um 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 hour to to listen to you speak about it so thank you very much and on top of that you've answered so many questions there about things which i've bandied around kind of departments before like oh, should we are they allowed to do this are they um, is it advisable to do this text is it and we never really know what the answer is we obviously consult the um the the examiner's guide and stuff like that. So thank thank you so much for um offering your lived experience of um of of dealing with the course for so long. And like I said, the passion that you obviously have for dealing with it. Thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. Thanks for having me.